Well, good to see everybody. Can I uh, please have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Daniel, chapter 7. Last week in our study in the book of Daniel, we started chapter 7. Now, before we continue looking at uh, chapter 7, let me just say one more time for those who are new that the first six chapters of the book of Daniel are historical and chronological, whereas the last six chapters are prophetic. The uh, dreams and visions recorded in chapters 7 through 12 all happen from the end of chapter 4 through the end of chapter 6, historically speaking. In fact, as we mentioned last week, during the 23 years between the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5, Daniel chapters 7 and 8 took place. Now, as we study through this chapter, as we and we're reviewing a little bit from last week, but as we study through this chapter, we're going to see that the dream that Daniel had is recorded in chapter 7 uh, is very similar to the dream Nebuchadnezzar had as is recorded in chapter 2. In fact, the two dreams are essentially the same using different symbols to communicate the same basic message. So the dreams themselves are different, but uh, the messages they are conveying, the interpretation is the same. The main difference between them is that in chapter 2, the kingdoms of this earth are seen from man's perspective as a series of precious metals, starting with the head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar's image in chapter 2, gold being the most precious metal, and then declining downward to the fourth kingdom, which is made up of iron. And of course, iron is not a precious metal at all, but it is the strongest of the metals. So they decrease in value, but increase in strength. Whereas in chapter 7, the kingdoms of this world are seen through the eyes of God pretty much as a series of voracious, uh, vicious animals devouring one another. So man tends to look at man's kingdoms in in terms of glory, and God tends to look at them in terms of gory, but you get the idea. The only real difference, as we said last time, guys, between the two dreams is that chapter 7 introduces us to the little horn. Now, uh, he's the key personage of the fifth kingdom, which is a confederacy of ten nations, over which he will rise to power, but again, not by force. He doesn't take power by force. Uh, He is thrust into the role of leader of the whole world. Uh, He leads this final world empire. And uh, initially, he comes as a man of peace, uh, super intelligent, very charismatic. Of course, he's, in, he's indwelt by the devil. But um, initially, the people of this world uh, must know him in some way because they, they are enamored with him. They want him to be the leader. Okay, We talked about uh, some of the possible scenarios that could lead the world into organizing under a one-world government. You can check that out online if you'd like. But um, of course, this, uh, they, the world wants him to run uh, to a rule because they see him as a messiah like figure or a messiah figure they believe he is the messiah savior of mankind of course his little horn that the world sees as their messiah we know as the antichrist who is a deceiver the ultimate false messiah many false prophets and messiahs would come in the last days jesus said but here we have the daddy of them all he is the ultimate false messiah and dwelt by the devil himself who will be in power, of course, when Jesus returns, the true Messiah to establish his kingdom on the earth. So uh, let's read the first eight verses. We got as far as verse eight last time, but let me just 
you know, let's just start at the beginning, just read the first eight verses, and then we'll get into our study tonight. So Daniel said, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, the year would be 556 B.C., Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. That was the Babylonian Empire. Again, we studied this last week. I watched till its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. And suddenly another beast, the second like a bear, that would be the Medo-Persian Empire. It was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and there was another beast, like a leopard, that would be the Greek Empire, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. This would be the Antichrist kingdom, so, so uh, terrifying. Daniel can't even think of an animal he can use to kind of liken it to. It's unlike anything he had ever seen before. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous Word. So guys, once again, this little horn is the Antichrist who rises out of the ten horns. These would be the ten nations or regions that make up this final world governing empire. Of course, the Antichrist will be over that empire and uh, will be in power when Jesus returns again to establish his kingdom. All right, so we pick it up tonight in verse 9 then. I watched till thrones were put in place. Now, if you've got a King James Bible, it says... Uh, thrones were cast down. That's an incorrect translation. It's uh, actually, uh, you know, the were put in place or establishes the idea. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was, was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him, a thousand thousands ministered to him, ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Now, this is interesting to me because when the Apostle John recorded his vision of heaven in Revelation chapter 4, verse 4, he mentioned some other thrones and those that sat on them, a group that Daniel doesn't mention. In Revelation 4, verse 4, we read, now this is John talking. Around the throne, throne of God, were 24 thrones. And on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. Many commentators, including myself, believe that these elders represent the church. The church. 
Apparently, Daniel didn't see these elders, which is why he doesn't mention them. They seem to have been, listen, hidden from his sight. And this would be in keeping with what Paul said in Ephesians 3, verse 5, that the church was a mystery hidden from the Old Testament saints. The reference to the Ancient of Days is speaking there of God the Father, not Jesus, because uh, verse 13 makes it clear that this is the Father and not the Son. Uh, one author did say, and I quote, The Ancient of Days is a name for God that emphasizes his eternality. He is the God who, was, who had existed from eternity past, has planned all things, and is working out his plan. Uh, he's working out his plan. The description of God must not be taken literally because God doesn't have a body, wear clothes, or grow white hair. These things are symbolic of his nature and character. He is eternal, holy, and sovereign. In Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 to 20, these same characteristics are applied to Jesus Christ, thus proving that he is the eternal Son of God, end quote. Well, the description that his throne, the Ancient of Days, was a fiery flame with its his throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire, verse 9, uh, is reminiscent of the description of God's throne as seen through the eyes of Ezekiel and recorded by him in his book, uh, chapter 1. Now, I'm going to let you read that on your own. And we're not going to go there because I don't know what he's seeing. I mean, he's seeing the throne of God. But he's got fire and wheels within wheels. I, I have no idea. Nobody does. Okay? I can't wait to see what he saw. And apparently Daniel as well. So, you know, just that's just a, a description as best uh, these writers can give. I mean, how would you describe? I mean, we're a little more advanced in the sense that we have, uh, what is it? Uh, you know, on in the movies, you know, you have the... Uh, the the technical effects and things, you know, and, and so it kind of helps us to visualize some of these things. But how about a guy living, Ezekiel lived 2,500 years ago, and he's trying to describe something that even in our day and age would be hard to put into words, all right? So, you know, we want to leave some things for heaven. You know, we want to, our first glimpse of the Lord and his throne in heaven, we want to just, wow, it's as Paul said, I, I don't even want to put it into words. I only do it in justice because he was taken up to heaven and had a vision of the th throne of God too. But um, the fire, you know, and every time we see God, fire is associated with him in some way. The fire speaks of his holiness and judgment against sin. Hebrews 12, 29, our God is a consuming fire. Speaking of judgment. Now, the idea of a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him, verse 10. Well, I believe that's symbolic of God's righteous judgment, which is poured out upon the wicked. God himself is holy and righteous. He burns in the sense that he is, uh, he is you know, remember the burning bush in Exodus 3. It symbolized that God is a, uh, uh, well, he's a consuming fire. But the uh, fiery stream that issues forth from his throne is symbolic of the fact that God does bring judgment. There are those who believe that God is holy and righteous, but he would never judge. He's a God of love. And the idea is that that is unbiblical. God is a very loving God, but he's also holy and righteous. And he wants us to know that he will punish sin if he has to. He will bring judgment. Now, his default setting, if I can put it that way, is to show mercy. But if people 
abuse the mercy and grace of God, do not get their lives right, continue to sin against Him, at one point they will experience His judgment, His wrath poured out. This world is about to experience that in a very dramatic way. And we'll talk about that more in a moment. God will pour judgment out upon the wicked. The statement in verse 10 that a thousand thousands ministered to him, ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him, is identical to John's vision of God's throne in Revelation chapter 5. Let me read to you verse 11. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand and thousands of thousands, describing the angels in heaven. Now, you have to understand, in the Greek language, which is what, of course, John the Apostle wrote in uh, in Revelation 5, in the Greek language, uh, 10,000 is the highest number. And it could mean 10,000, literally 10,000, but often it means an innumerable amount. So when John says, I saw angels around the throne, and the number was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, it could very well that be that he is actually trying to communicate an innumerable number of angels. There could be probably as billions, who knows, maybe even trillions. If angels are sprinkled throughout the universe, and they could be, the universe, as big as it is, would require trillions of angels to be everywhere. I'll leave that with you to grapple with. But uh, I do see in the statement in verse 10, of all these angels, a thousand, you know, thousands of thousands and ten thousand times ten thousands, I do see in this a reference, uh, something that John said in Revelation 5, as I just said. Uh, and in fact, as I believe Daniel 7, 9 to 10, parallels Revelation 4 and 5. When John sees his vision of the throne of God, uh, I believe that's kind of what we're keying in right here. This is what Daniel is talking about. I say that because it takes place before the Antichrist kingdom is destroyed. And in John's vision of heaven, in Revelation, we see chapters 4 and 5, a vision of God's throne, and then the judgments start getting poured out, and the Antichrist's uh, kingdom is eventually destroyed, and that comes later. Okay, so uh, I just see that as we're kind of beginning that, but... Uh, it says that in verse 10, the court was seated and the books were opened. I believe these books that are opened uh, are those uh, books that contain the crimes against God, violations of his law that the nations of the world are guilty of. Now, God has these books for individuals. Paul talks about the handwriting of ordinances that were against us in Colossians uh, 2, I believe. Uh, also, uh, Paul talks about our account, our ledger, and how that Jesus Christ's blood was put to our account. It's an accounting term, Romans 4. He uses that 11 times, reckon, accounted. It's, it's all a, a bookkeeping term. That we have this ledger, and in it God has written every one of our sins. Uh, in thought, word, in deed, everything that we have done to violate what he has said is lost. Uh, have been written down in God's book. God is an excellent record keeper. Every sin, no matter how small, is written in our ledger. Now, here's the thing. Once a person receives Christ as their Lord and Savior, well, God takes the blood of Christ and writes paid in full at the bottom of our ledger. The blood of Christ pays for all of our sins. The Bible teaches this very clearly. Again, read Colossians 2. 
Those people who reject Christ, at one point, they're going to stand before God on their own. Read Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15. How unbelievers eventually stand before the Lord Jesus Christ at the great white throne judgment. And it says the books were opened. One book is God's law, the word of God. The other book is the ledger, which talks about every sin a person's ever committed. And there's a third book, the book of life. And those who are written in the book of life don't stand before the great white throne judgment because their sins have been paid for. They're saved. Only unbelievers whose sins have not been paid for will stand before Jesus at the great white throne judgment. And listen, it's not to have their day in court. Well, I think I'm a good person. I've heard people say, when I stand before God, I'll, you know, I'll plead my case. The case has been determined. We were guilty in the Garden of Eden. God stamped the human race guilty. The gavel came down. That was it. What happens at the great white throne judgment is not a determination of your guilt or innocence. Anyone who stands at the great white throne judgment, they're guilty. What happens at it, that's the sentencing phase where they stand before God in our sentence to hell and all the, the sins they've committed will determine the degree of punishment they will have in hell. And apparently God has a book like this for nations. You say, can nations sin? Yeah, there are passages that indicate that God does hold us accountable individually, but also as a group, as a group. And there's plenty of examples of this. But God will hold nations accountable, as we talked about Sunday. A lot of times leaders will do things that are against what God has said, but the people of that nation don't really challenge them because what the leaders are doing will somehow benefiting them financially or some other way. So they don't make their voice heard. They, they know it's technically wrong, but you know what? You know, we have to do it this way because it's the only way we can be blessed and so on. So nations are, I believe here, uh, that the, the books that are open now uh, are, are God's ledger with regard to nations. This is in preparation for him now, Revelation 6, as he begins to pour out his judgment upon this world. This, he's opening the book, which is the justification. And then we see, as Daniel described, his throne issuing forth this stream uh, of fire, which is judgment. It's coming. And we see this recorded in Revelation 6 to 19, the judgment of God poured out upon this, this evil, Christ-rejecting, rebellious world. Verse 11, Daniel 7, I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. So I watched till the beast was slain. And in that context, I believe uh, Daniel is talking about the beast, uh, the fourth beast, the kingdom of the Antichrist. Of course, the Antichrist is the leader of that kingdom. But uh, John is talking about how that the beast, his kingdom was destroyed. And he himself was given, was destroyed, his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As we said last time, when you read Revelation 13 especially, it kind of uses the kingdom of the beast and the Antichrist kind of interchangeably. And, and some commentaries are like, they, they can't kind of get past that. Well, he's, but here's the talk about the Antichrist's kingdom. And then a couple of verses later, it's using the same phrase, the beast, to talk about the Antichrist. What's going on? Well, when you get to the Antichrist kingdom, not us, but them, you're not going to be able to separate the man from the kingdom. They're, they're pretty much one. Like Hitler and the Third Reich were pretty much one. You, you can't really separate them. 
And that's what the Bible is saying. In pretty much every place, the Antichrist is mentioned. And by the way, there's, I forgot how many different titles for the Antichrist. Do you know the Antichrist is technically not one of them? Now, John talks about many Antichrists have come into the world. And of course, that would include this character. But he's not specifically singled out as the Antichrist. He's got different titles he goes by. But almost every time he's mentioned, guess what? His big mouth is mentioned. He's always shooting his mouth off. Pompous words and so on. And so this guy's shooting his mouth off. And Daniel said, while he was speaking, I watched till the beast was slain and its body given, uh, destroyed and given to the burning flame. This guy corresponds to Jesus coming at his second coming to the earth. Uh, as the Antichrist and his armies have gathered to make war with the Lord, to keep him from establishing his kingdom. The Bible talks about how at one point the Antichrist is going to gather the... See, and maybe I'll save it because I think we'll probably talk about it more uh, uh, as we get into the study a little farther. But this guy is going to have such power to deceive that the people of this world actually believe he's able to take on the Lord Jesus Christ, God incarnate, second person of the Trinity, and defeat him. I mean, so he's able to rally his troops into the valley of Megiddo. They know the devil is indwelling this guy. The devil knows the scriptures. And they know they're getting close because the Bible says all over the place that from the time the Antichrist sets up his image in the Holy of Holies, start counting... Three and a half years, 1260 days, 42 months, a time, times, and a half a time. It's all over the Bible. Jesus is going to return. So at very least, when the Antichrist puts his image up in the Holy of Holies and proclaims himself to be God, the world knows that Jesus Christ is coming back in 1260 days. And they're waiting for him in the Valley of Megiddo which is where this final battle of Armageddon is going to take place, which actually never does take place. They're all there. Can you imagine? Now, we've talked about this so many times. Bear with me. Can you imagine the armies of this world led by the Antichrist in the Valley of Megiddo with their Apache helicopters, surface-to-air missiles, AK-47s, uh, tanks, and everything else? And there they are, and they're looking at the clouds. He's coming any moment. And then here he comes. But, but here's the thing. I believe that um, the pompous words that Daniel uh, heard the Antichrist speaking, I, I personally, this is my feeling. I'm not saying I can point to anywhere in the scripture that will verify it. But we do know that when Jesus returns, this guy's shooting his mouth off before the Lord deals with him. There is no battle of Armageddon. The Lord just takes the false prophet and the Antichrist, just whips him into the lake of fire. And then with the sword of his mouth, he just wipes out all the army of the Antichrist. There's no battle. You're going to fight against the Lord. Are you kidding me? How deluded do you have to be? But I think that, you know, again, he's shooting his mouth off before Jesus comes and throws him in the lake of fire. And I think part of what he's probably saying is he's telling his troops not to worry. Stay strong, guys. We're going to get him. He's not going to take care of He's not going to defeat us. We're going to defeat him. He, we won't let his kingdom be established. Oh, well, at this point, we need to read the first few verses of Psalm 2, if you wouldn't mind turning there. Because Psalm 2 talks about this very incident. I'll just read the first five verses to you. Psalm 2, verse 1. 
Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? It's a, the ultimate vain thing that you can take on God and win in battle. Verse 2, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord finds this really humorous. You know, here they're all serious uh, on the earth. You know, they're ready to take on the Lord Jesus. And the Lord's up in heaven looking at this and laughing. I can just see Gabriel, come here. you got to see this. Look what they're doing down there. They're, they've all gathered for war. They think you're going to defeat my son. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. He's mocking them. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yeah, the word goes forth and wipes them all out. He doesn't even fight. Hey, that word that proceeds from the Lord Jesus' mouth, was the same word that said in Genesis 1-1, let there be light, or the same word that created everything out of nothing. Everything has been created by the word of his power and is held together by that same word. The Lord has power. And when he speaks, things happen and enemies get wiped out. Now, if you want to see this in the New Testament, turn to Revelation 19. Because Daniel in chapter 7, verse 11, just touches briefly on what John elaborates on, because John is seeing it, but he gives us much more detail of the Lord's coming and uh, destroying the Antichrist and so on. In Revelation 19, starting with verse 11, we read, Now, I, this is the end of the tribulation period. Jesus is returning now. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name, written, a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations." And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of, and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Verse 19. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured. That would be the Antichrist. And with him the false prophet, his sidekick. So you got a leader of the one world government and the leader of the one world church who works for the guy leading the one world government. But um, the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. All right, back to Daniel 7, looking at verse 11 again. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn, this is the Antichrist again, was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame, cast into the lake of fire. As for the rest of the beasts, 
They had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Now, these beasts would be the, the other uh, kingdoms uh, that these beasts represented, of course. Um, the Aramaic in verse 12, and remember, we said that Daniel used the Aramaic language in this book, starting with chapter 2, verse 4, running to the end uh, through the end of chapter 7, uh, because he was writing about Gentile history, and at, in his day, Aramaic was the la Gentile language. So he switches from Hebrew, starting with chapter 2, verse 4, and uses Aramaic all the way through chapter 7. But the Aramaic for, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time, could be translated. And I'll just read you one uh, translation, the Holman Christian Standard Bible. I looked through the various ones I have on my computer, and many of them said this very thing. I just want to give you the flavor of it. Verse 12, as for the rest of the beasts, their authority to rule was removed, but an extension of life was granted to them for a certain period of time. Okay, <laughs> but what does that mean? What does that mean? How can the Antichrist kingdom be done away with when Jesus returns yet the rest of the beast? And again, these would be the world empires that were absorbed into the Antichrist kingdom when he rose to power. How could the rest of these beasts have their dominion, their authority removed, but their lives extended for a while? What does that mean? Well, let me read to you what one historian says on it. I think he explains it fairly well. Uh, not many understand what is going on, but I'll just share this with you. He said the explanation is that their dominance ceased. But they continued to live because they were absorbed into the next empire. For example, Greece was conquered by Rome, and although Greek dominance came to an end, the nation continued to live by being absorbed into another one of the earthly kingdoms, the Roman Empire. But the fourth empire will be completely destroyed and replaced by a totally new world order, the kingdom of God. That is true. And yet, listen, it won't happen immediately when Jesus returns. Now, bear with me. And I'll just touch on this because we'll study it in more detail in Daniel 12. But in Daniel 12, 11 to 12, it tells us that there's going to be a small gap of time between when Jesus returns to the earth and, of course, the first thing he does is cast the Antichrist and false prophet into the lake of fire, as we have said. But from the time he does that, and then his new kingdom, the millennial kingdom, officially begins, well, there's going to be a small gap of time. Until that time, the nations of the earth, and this is before the Lord judges the nations, read Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46, entitled The, the Judgment of the Nations. So nations will be judged. But until, and again, I don't want to lose you, the Lord comes back, he deals with the false prophet and antichrist immediately judging them, casting them alive in the lake of fire. But before his kingdom now officially begins, there's a small gap of time. Is this what Daniel is referring to, that their dominion was taken away? In other words, when Jesus returns, they won't be allowed to rule anymore. He's the king. And yet, they will be allowed to remain for a little while. Could this be what Daniel's talking about? Maybe, possibly, I don't know. In fact, with Jesus' return to the earth at his second coming, it will officially end what the Bible calls, listen, the times of the Gentiles. The times of the Gentiles. Scholars have debated for a long time when this period called the time of the Gentiles actually began. Some say it began with Nebuchadnezzar conquering, 
the land of Israel and, and taking control of Jerusalem, eventually destroying it. Uh, 600 B.C., that's when they believed the times of the Gentiles started. Others say, well, no, it really started in 70 A.D. with the Romans when they destroyed the city and all. And uh, after that, the Jews were pretty much scattered. And so uh, Jerusalem was not under Jewish control any longer. I'll let you wrestle with that. We do know one thing for sure. Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles from when the Antichrist goes into the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, puts his image in the Holy of Holies and demands to be worshipped as God. That will be at the midpoint of the tribulation period, seven-year tribulation period, at the very midpoint. He goes into the rebuilt temple, sets up his image, demands to be worshipped as God. At that point, he will take Jerusalem by force. And the Jews will be forced to flee for their lives. Read Matthew 24. Don't even go back into the house to take anything, but run, flee down into the wilderness, I believe to the rock city of Petra, where many will hold up and be protected by the Lord from the wrath of the Antichrist. So when the Antichrist sets up his image in the Holy of Holies, and then from that time till Jesus returns, we just said three and a half years, 42 months, 1260 days, or as Daniel describes it in chapters 12 and chapter 7, a time, times, and half a time. Now, verse 13, he said, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, which would be Jesus, coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days. That would be God the Father. So we know the Ancient of Days is not Jesus because he's differentiated here. And they brought him near before him. So, Jesus Christ, coming in with the clouds, is brought before the Father's throne. And uh, the Son of Man is a familiar title for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's used 82 times in the Gospels, many times by Jesus himself, to refer to himself. It is really a redemptive title. A redemptive title. Why? Because a man blew it, Adam, and a man had to redeem us. It's called a kinsman redeemer, a goel the Hebrew is, read the book of Ruth. The whole book of Ruth is dedicated to the concept that you had to have a near relative redeem you. Adam blew it for all of us. Paradise lost, right? A man blew it. A man had to redeem us. That's why God had to become a man. When Jesus called himself the son of man, he was using a redemptive title. The fact that he had come, God became man because only Man could die to pay for the sins of Adam, but no man is perfect. He would have to be the God-man. But his title, the Son of Man, is a redemptive title. The statement that he is coming with the clouds of heaven is spoken of in numerous places in the New Testament. I'm going to read you three and build my case for what I think is going on here, okay? But in Revelation 1, verse 7, it says, Behold, he is coming with clouds. Now look, he doesn't say he is coming in the clouds. It says he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so. Amen, John says. Well, you couple that, or put right next to it, Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... The saints that have gone before us into heaven is the idea. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. 
we have an incredible heritage as Christians, as believers, people of God. Many who have gone before us, who have lived incredible lives of sacrifice and faithfulness. And now it's our turn. They have left a legacy for us. They have uh, lived lives of faithfulness. And you know what? We want to continue that great tradition and not mess up and make them proud, basically, uh, that we continued uh, being faithful as they were. So a, a great cloud of witnesses, saints that have gone before us. And then Revelation 19, verse 14, And the armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. So when it says he's coming with clouds, I believe that what it's saying is he's coming with all of his saints. We're all dressed in white robes, linen, his righteousness, right? And if you're looking at this from earth's vantage point, looking up into the sky, Jesus said, every eye is going to see me. I'm going to light the sky up with my second coming glory. And of course, as he radiates, illuminates us, you're going to see the Lord Jesus Christ. And around him, it looks like a vast cloud. But it's really believers who are coming back with him to establish his kingdom. And they brought him, Jesus, verse 13, they brought him near before him, the Father, And uh, here Jesus is being presented before the Father's throne and uh, given dominion over all the nations of the world, uh, just as the Father promised him in eternity past, recorded in many places in the Bible, uh, the Old Testament, uh, not the least of which is Psalm 2, verse 8, where the Father said to the Son, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. And then, of course, we all know Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, because we hear it sung at Christmas time and so on. But for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government, the world's world's government, the kingdom, will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. God has promised it. God will do it. He has given the Son the promise that part of the the reward of him coming down and dying for humanity would be that God would, the Father would give him the right to reign over the earth during the kingdom age. And of course, part of that was us. He was going to give him a bride. And that's what the church is. But guys, this is a fulfillment now of the Lord coming and establishing his kingdom. This is the fulfillment of Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel 2. When Nebuchadnezzar saw this giant 90-foot polymetallic image, you know, and uh, at one point he saw a stone not cut with hands, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ's virgin birth, uh, coming and smiting this image in its feet, the whole thing crumbles, blows away, and this stone becomes a uh, mountain that fills the whole earth. That's Jesus is the stone not cut with hands, virgin born. And when he comes, he is going to bring a kingdom. A mountain often in scripture is um, uh, analogous of a kingdom. But we read in Daniel chapter 2, verses 34 and 5, you watched while a stone. Now Daniel is interpreting the dream for Nebuchadnezzar. You watched while a stone was cut without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. 
Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found and the stone that struck the image became a great mountain that filled the whole earth. We just talked about that, the millennial kingdom. Now, unlike the previous four kingdoms, guys, and the kingdom of the Antichrist, the kingdom of Jesus Christ can never be removed or destroyed. Once it's established, it is eternal. This is the kingdom that God had in mind when he told David that his throne would never end. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, and it says, In your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. God is giving David a promise. David wants to build God a house. And he's all excited about it because God's living in a tent at this point. David built himself a beautiful new cedar palace. He feels bad as he looks out the window and sees God living in a tent still. Okay, he's camping out. And so David decides, I'm going to build God a house. And tells Nathan, Nathan, I had a great idea. I'm going to, Nathan the prophet, I'm going to build God a house. Nathan says, oh, that sounds great, David, go for it. Goes home, and that night God speaks to Nathan and says, Nathan, you've got to go back and tell David, he can't build me a house. He's a man of war. He shed too much blood. But his son will build me a house. But because it was in his heart to do it, I'm going to build him a house. I'm going to make his descendants sit on the throne of Israel of the world forever. Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now look, it's true the millennial kingdom is really only a thousand years long. But Paul goes on to explain how Jesus reigns forever. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, I'll let you read the chapter on your own. But Paul is talking about the events that will take place all the way from Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, second coming, the, the various resurrections that will come after, because he was the first fruits, and after him there are, he used the Greek word tagma, there's going to be a series from there. I mean, the first one that is raised after Christ is the church. And then we talk about the Old Testament saints, tribulation saints, and so on. But you can study chapter 15 on your own or go online, listen to the teaching we did on it a few years ago. But after all these resurrections and the millennial kingdom is over, he says in verse 24, then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet, but when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will be subject to him, to God the Father, who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. A little confusing, right? You read that and go, okay, I'm not sure I understand what he's talking about. Let me just quickly tell you what's going on. After the millennial kingdom is over and the destruction of Satan, Revelation 20, verses 7 to 10, the Lord Jesus will deliver the kingdom to God the Father. Verse 24 of 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that. At that time, Jesus will have defeated every enemy, including death. You have to understand something. When Jesus comes to establish his kingdom, when the millennial kingdom begins... We'll be there with our glorified bodies because we were already redeemed and in the rapture we receive our glorified bodies, right? So we'll never die. 
But a lot of people will be allowed to enter into the millennial kingdom with their physical bodies because they were alive when the Lord came. They escaped the Antichrist. They weren't, you know, they hid out, whatever. So they will enter the millennial kingdom, the earthly kingdom, with their physical bodies. They'll marry, have kids, because death will be very rare during this time. Many people will live the whole thousand years. The earth will be populated to, well, it won't be uh, harsh climatic conditions that we know today. Uh, many believe that the earth is going to be, uh, it's not going to be tilted 23 degrees on its axis. It'll be maybe straight up and down, which will give a more even heating and all to the entire earth. But the millennial kingdom is going to take place. Many people are going to live the entire thousand years. But death is going to still be around. It'll be rare. The child will die at 100, the Bible says. But death won't be conquered yet. It won't be conquered until after the great white throne judgment and the final person is sentenced to hell. Then it says in Revelation 20, verse 14, death and Hades are cast where? Into the lake of fire and there's no more death. He will have conquered death completely at that time. At that time, guys, all of God's redemptive plan for mankind will have been accomplished. All rebels will have been dealt with, especially and including the devil. By that time, he will have abolished all rule, human rule, government, and all authority and power of man on earth. And listen, all demonic hierarchy in the heavenly or spirit realm. Read Ephesians 6, verse 12. Because there are thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers. These are levels of authority in the spirit realm. God's got his angels. Michael's an archangel. The word arche means ruler. He's a ruling angel. There are levels like generals and captains and whatever uh, in the spirit realm. God's got good angels that go by those uh, levels and the devil has got his army. But by the time Jesus is done, before he gives the kingdom over to the Father, he will have accomplished everything that sin messed up, he's going to make right. One author commented on this. He said, and I quote, From the time of his incarnation until the time when he presents the kingdom to the Father, Christ is in the role of a servant, fulfilling his divine task as assigned by his Father. After he has brought everything into subjection, he will hand the kingdom back to the Father. Creation will be brought back to God in a perfect condition. Having accomplished the work of redemption and restoration for which he became man, he will retain the subordinate place that he took in incarnation. The reign of Christ as the Son of Man will then give way to the eternal kingdom in heaven. His reign as Son of God in heaven will continue forever. So the Lord Jesus Christ will continue. His kingdom will go on forever. But we talk about the millennial kingdom. This is where he is tying up all the loose ends. He's finishing the work, right? We'll talk about this more when we get to chapter 9. So Daniel 7, verse 14. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him, the Lord Jesus Christ. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed, eternal. Now, guys, in verses 15 to 28, Daniel asks one of the myriad of angels standing around in his vision. Remember, a thousand times ten thousands, you know, it, just, there's a lot of angels. So he goes over to one of them, it seems, and he asks for help in understanding the vision. And so the rest of the chapter contains the angel's interpretation of Daniel's vision. Verse 15, 
I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within me, excuse me, in my spirit within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. I came near to one of those who stood by and asked him the truth of, of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Those great beasts, which are four, are four kings which rise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Then I wished to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces and trampled the residue with its feet, and the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up, before which three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words. So I shooting his big mouth off, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them until the Ancient of Days came and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Well, at this point, turn over to Revelation 13. Because John talks about basically the same thing here. Revelation 13, starting with verse 5. And I know we're jumping around a lot, bear with me. Uh, these things are talked about in different places. It's kind of good to get a fuller idea from looking at the various passages that talk about these things, give you a little more insight. Uh, here, Revelation 13, starting with verse 5. And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemy. So again, his big mouth. We know it's the Antichrist. That's always how he's described. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months. So initially he starts off as a man of peace. He's not ruling by force. The world wants him to be their leader. But at the midpoint, the devil, somebody tries to take him out. He's not loved by everybody. Somebody tries to assassinate this guy. He looks like he's dead. But suddenly, the devil enters into him. He resurrects, quote-unquote. I don't think he's really dead. I don't think Satan has the power of life and death. But he resurrects, and now the world that was enamored with this guy falls into full-blown worship. Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him, they say? And that's why I believe they follow him in trying to defeat God, because they're so brainwashed now. He's got miraculous charisma and power and so on. But so at the time he sets up his image in the Holy of Holy, then 42 months, he will be a dictator. He will be uh, leading the, his armies against God's saints and so on. You can study Revelation 17 uh, to see how that works. But he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Then he opened his mouth and blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the who? Now be very careful. Even in my studies today, I came across several good commentators who jump on the word saints and say, well, who are the saints? The church. The church is going through the tribulation period. Well, what does the word saint mean? Holy one? Separated one? You have church saints living in the church age from Pentecost to the rapture. And then after we're gone, the Holy Spirit's going to be working very hard in this world to save many people. They will be tribulation saints. The redeemed in the tribulation period. The church is not going through the tribulation period for a lot of reasons I don't have time to get into now. We've talked about this in the past. 
And beside this, listen, it was granted to him to make war with the saints. Didn't Jesus say against my church, the gates of hell will not prevail. So you got the Antichrist who is indwelt by the devil, uh, making war with saints and overcoming them. This can't be the church. It's got to be true relation saints. And he overcomes them until Jesus returns and defeats him, the Antichrist. Daniel 7, verse 23. Thus he said, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth. Daniel says, what about this fourth beast? Man, okay, I get the first three, you know, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece. What about this fourth beast? Here's where it gets tricky again. Some of you weren't here last week. If you were here, bear with me. i got to touch on this again because we're still in chapter 7. But Daniel says, what about this fourth beast? I've never seen anything like it. And uh, the angel says, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, trample it, and break it in pieces. Now, guys, once again, the fourth, this fourth beast corresponds to the fourth kingdom in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. I'll just read it to you. Daniel 2, verse 40. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron. Remember the legs of iron represent the Roman Empire? The fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. This fourth beast represents the Roman Empire which is the fourth world empire after Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. As we've already pointed out from history, the Roman Empire was notorious, listen, for crushing its enemies, even as iron being the strongest metal of all can crush the others, the gold, the silver, and bronze, and so on. Now, as I said, guys, last week, here's where these two symbols of the fourth kingdom become a little confusing. Nebuchadnezzar's image, chapter 2, and Daniel's vision of, the, of this terrifying beast in chapter 7. Here's where they get a little confusing. Please bear with me. I'll try to make this as clear as I can. And, and let me just say this. The commentators are all over the map. So nobody has a consensus. There's not a consensus view. Uh, and I understand why. It's a difficult passage. I'm not saying I'm right. I could be wrong. I'm just saying, though, as I have studied this, I'm going to tell you what I believe, and then you do your own study. Now, this fourth kingdom that Nebuchadnezzar sees this image has these legs of iron but then connected to the legs of iron are feet with ten toes made up of iron and clay so you see the iron in the toes relates to the iron in the legs the iron in the legs Roman Empire but the ten toes speak of the Antichrist kingdom it's not called a fifth empire though although it is this is why it's different from all other kingdoms, the angel says. There is a strange connection between the Roman Empire and the last empire before Jesus returns that the Antichrist takes charge of. The ten toes made up of iron and clay are connected to the two legs of iron in the image in chapter 2, but they are separate kingdoms, as I just said, the Roman Empire and Antichrist kingdom. Guys, this is also true, I believe with the ten horns that are connected to the fourth beast in Daniel's vision. Verse 24, the ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the first ones and he shall subdue three kings. Now, the fifth kingdom under the Antichrist 
And he's described in verse 20 as the horn, which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. That's the Antichrist. The fifth kingdom under the Antichrist will in some way be connected to the fourth kingdom, as I just said, the Roman Empire. There are commentators who understand this and say that the Antichrist kingdom is going to be a revival of the Roman Empire. In other words, whatever Rome, the Roman Empire back in, in 2,000 years ago, somehow the Antichrist kingdom is going to be a revival of it. Not the same thing, but so closely connected that the Bible doesn't say in Daniel 7, it's a fifth kingdom, it still calls it the fourth kingdom. And this is where the commentators go crazy because they say, well, if the fourth kingdom is the Antichrist kingdom, then what Daniel saw, it jumped over the Roman Empire altogether. Yeah, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece. And then we go right to the end of the Antichrist kingdom. I don't see any reason why the vision would have done that. Again, I think that Rome is so closely connected to the Antichrist kingdom, however that's going to work out. They're seen as one kingdom. That's why the angel says, this kingdom, this Antichrist kingdom, there's never been anything like it. I don't think a world empire, I know it. A world em- these are world-governing empires now we're talking about. There has never been a world-governing empire that has been in power, brought down to nothing, been dead for 2,000 years, and resurrected. That's why this is unique. And, again, because... The Antichrist kingdom is a resurrection of the Roman uh, Empire. We are left with, it says, the fourth kingdom. Not a fifth kingdom, but we know it's separate. All right? And uh, let me again just read you from my notes. I believe the fourth kingdom is Rome, while the fifth kingdom consisting of ten parts, and yet still called the fourth kingdom in Daniel 7, is speaking of the Antichrist kingdom, separate from the fourth kingdom, and yet connected to it. That will be in power right before Jesus returns to establish his kingdom upon the earth. All right, let's finish. Verse 24. The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom. Revived Roman Empire in the last days. So these ten nations that have leaders over them that the Antichrist is going to take charge of and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the first ones. Yeah, they're nations. And uh, this will be the leader who will take charge of those nations, the Antichrist. And he shall subdue three kings. We talked about this last week. You can listen to the study. Verse 25, he shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand, for a time and times and half a time, again, three and a half years, 42 months, 1260 days. In other words, the last half of the tribulation period. Verse 26, but the court shall be seated and they shall take away his dominion, the Antichrist, to consume and destroy it forever. When it says that the Antichrist will intend to change times, I believe he's going to want to begin a new calendar that coincides with his rise to power and the fact that he has declared himself to be God. Read 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 4. Look, just as the real Messiah, Jesus Christ, when he came, changed everything. All the calendars, pretty much, were now predicated. How do we uh, gauge history? B.C., 
before Christ, or A.D., Anno Domini, Latin for the year of our Lord, Jesus Christ changed times. The Antichrist, the false Messiah, is going to want to change times too. I think he's going to want to enact a new calendar where he himself is now the focal point of all human history. He's got no self-esteem issues, I know that. He's pretty confident in himself. Also, when it says he'll want to change laws, or change law, that's pretty easy. No doubt it means he'll want to repeal and replace God's law with his own laws. Let me read verse 27, and let me read it to you out of the NIV, because it comes through just a little clearer. Daniel 7, 27. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints, the people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey Him, the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? That means that someday we, and I'm thinking primarily of the church, are going to sit on His throne and rule with Him. That's an incredible thing to think about. The Bible clearly teaches New Testament that we as the bride of Christ will sit with him on his throne. We will judge as things are being worked out and people are being judged. Judge angels, Paul said. Can't you work things out? You got these petty things going on in your churches. Can't you work things out? Don't you understand we're going to judge angels someday, Paul said. But we're going to be judging with, you know, with the Lord and then ruling with the Lord. People say, you know, why am I being blamed for Adam's sin? You know, I didn't blow it in the Garden of Eden. If you were there, you definitely would have. I would have. Adam was the best we had. He had no sin nature. He was the best, you know, he was our champion. And he blew it. But let me just tell you this. Some people get bitter because uh, they're being blamed for Adam's sin. They're, you know, sickness and death and all the... That's a result of Adam's sin. Why am I being judged? Let me tell you something. You gain more in Christ than you ever lost in Adam. Because through Christ, well, not only where we redeemed, but we will reign. In fact, as Paul said in Romans 8, not only will we reign, everything that belongs to our Father, we will inherit. We will be co-inheritors, right, with Jesus Christ. Wow. Well, Daniel's pretty spooked. I mean, I don't know if he thought maybe I had some onions on my burger and I'm having this vision now. I mean, I don't know. It's an upset stomach. But verse 28 this is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me, and my countenance changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Poor Daniel. This poor guy, I tell you what, it's rough to be a prophet, you know? God lets you in on things, you're like, Lord, I don't really want to hear it again. I don't want to hear any more. <laughs> Bad enough, you know? But Daniel was a faithful guy. So next week, God willing, we will pick it up in chapter 8. Uh, I don't think we have to spend as much time, although I say that right now, but because um, in many ways, chapter 8 is repeating some of the things we've already studied once or twice. So my goal is to try to get into chapter 9 and then save the end part, that incredible prophecy. Uh, if you study prophecy at all, you have to at one point get into Daniel 9, verses 24 to 27. It is pivotal. Okay, you can't understand what's going to happen in the future if you don't understand Daniel 9, 24 to 27. So we'll see how far we get, but we'll uh, get there eventually. Father, we thank you for your word. 
And Lord, we don't need an angel to tell us what your word means. We have the Holy Spirit, the author, who lives in our hearts. So Lord, thank you. And Lord, we pray that you would enlighten us as we read your word, Lord. Give us the right interpretation. That, Lord, we might benefit from it. Uh, that we might know what you're saying. That, uh, Lord, that your truth would be the light that guides our, us on our journey. And we thank you, Lord, for this. And we praise you and ask you to continue blessing these studies. Not very easy at times, but we pray that you'll give us grace to understand. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.